Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. When do you have the hardest time staying focused? Usually when it's on something I do not like. What makes you feel most distracted, like in, at school or at home? Maybe when something, someone has something that I don't have and I want it. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. So then what happens? So then I usually focus on that thought mm-hmm. and idea. What does it look like when you're focused? Sometimes I'm happy when I'm focused. Do you know why? I think it's because when I'm focused, it's usually on something that I really like, like art. What happens when you get really focused on art? I usually don't usually stop. (laughs) And what happens if you mess up while you're drawing a picture? I just erase it or keep drawing. Welcome to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. I'm Elizabeth Solomon, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Goldman and Hanuman Goldman. Hi, Dan. Hi, Hanuman. Hi. Hey there. Today, we're featuring a first-person story of a nurse of 40 years, Patricia Simpson, who talks about the complexities that arose in the public health system as the city of Chelsea, Massachusetts, addressed diverse and urgent needs at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Not only was Patricia a nurse, but she also served as the emergency response coordinator at Mass General Hospital Clinic and experienced the constant need to reprioritize her attention and focus to ensure the right people got the right resources and care at the right time. She's a hero. She basically is, yes. She is definitely a hero. She is. This interview makes me think a lot about how do we focus and attend in an emergency, right? When the energy is ramped up, we are in a state of crisis. And so Dan and Hanuman, I'm wondering if either of you have an example of that, of when you have been in a place of crises and have been able to focus your attention. Not too long ago, uh, my wife and I were on vacation. We have two horses. And the first day we arrived at the vacation spot, we got an urgent message that one of the horses was lying down. We saw a picture, it looked like the horse was dead. And we were in a kind of panic state. We didn't know what to do. We couldn't go back there. And uh, we had to focus on finding uh, 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 someone with a horse trailer 
who could pick up the horse that day. We've had to find a hospital. The vet was saying this horse has to go to a hospital right now. And uh, it, it was just one thing after another, after another, we just had to do it. So actually, I think it enhanced our focus, the, the urgency and the emergency. It's interesting to hear you say it enhanced your focus, because I think there's another reality that we experience where all of a sudden we become locked in that freeze state, right? When we're in a state of crisis. And I'm wondering, Dan, if you can think back to that moment and think, what were the sensations? What were the emotions? What were the bodily sensations? And how did you manage those effectively enough to be able to direct your attention to what needed to be done? Well, Liz, I think you're right. The emergency system in the brain can immobilize the rest of the brain and take over. I remember my first year in college, I was uh, frozen in fear during a calculus exam. And I actually, I didn't even answer a question. I was like paralyzed with fear. That can happen too. Uh, and I, I think that what got us able to move was the need to help another being. There's something about that, which essentially at its core is compassion. The, the wanting very, so much to do something to help this being survive uh, got us very focused. Oh, I hear that as just tapping into the deepest core of, of a sense of motivation, right? What motivates us from our heart. Hanuman, what about you? Any stories come to mind? Trying to think of emergencies that I've been in. I was thinking of one for you, and I don't know if <laughs> you, you. want to. <laughs> <laughs> Great. What, what was my emergency? I was thinking about when Sujata was very young, and she pulled a cup of hot tea off the table accidentally and got burned and spilt hot water all over herself. And I'm wondering if that's something that you want to reflect on. How did you, how did you um, get called to action in that moment? Well, I hate reflecting on that moment. That was terrible. We don't need to reflect on it. That was a terrible moment, but that's actually what what was arising for me because uh, that really was a, an immediate emergency. So the, the story is that we, uh, as a family, we all went away to celebrate your 70th. And the first mornings that we arrived in this just amazing place, uh, Sujata, who was 10, 11 months then, pulled this scalding, like freshly poured hot boiled water onto her arm, shoulder, a little on her neck. And um, in that moment, luckily, my sister Mira was there, who has a, a health care uh, background. And she immediately went into action. She took off uh, Sujata's shirt. She, we got her into the, under the cold water and she was the focus that we needed at that moment. I was paralyzed. This um, precious, precious being had just been so deeply hurt. Uh, even now I'm like, the emotions are so strong when I think about it, it's hard for me to, uh, to be there. But um, that focus saved Sujata's skin. It, it, it got the hot water off of it as soon as possible. And keeping her under that cold water um, made sure that the burns weren't as deep as they would have been otherwise. And um, 
Yeah, it was very clear. My attention, my my ability in that moment was absolutely compromised because I was so emotional. And Mira, while she cares deeply for my children, uh, she has this background that she could draw from and, and was able to immediately go into action. And I think that that really speaks well of practice generally. Just this is this is something that she's practiced. And so it was a, a response that was really readily available to her that uh, even in this emotional moment, she was able to draw on that training and that understanding and that knowledge. This woman that we're speaking with in this episode, the practice that Patricia has is exactly what was needed. She had understanding both of the, uh, the direct uh, nursing that needed to happen, but she also understood the systems. She, she had the knowledge and, and had practice experience with the system and was able to coordinate uh, really clearly and well because of that practice and knowledge. She was able to draw on that experience to perform really well in a time of great need. So let's listen to Liz and Patricia. Patricia Simpson has been a nurse for over 40 years. The last 15 years, she's served as the emergency preparedness coordinator for Massachusetts General Hospital, where she covers three health centers. Since the start of the COVID-19 crisis, Patricia has been a part of the Chelsea pandemic response team. For reference, in July of 2020, Chelsea, Massachusetts had the highest coronavirus infection in the state and among the highest in the country. We're grateful to Patricia for taking the time to share her story with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. Thank you. We're so grateful. So this is our third part in a three-part series on focus and attention. And Patricia, before we launch into the topic at hand, I would just love to have you tell our listeners a little bit about you and the professional hats that you wear and your purpose in the world as you make sense of it. Well, thank you. Well, um, I've been a nurse, as you said, for over 40 years. Um, I've always been uh, very interested in helping vulnerable populations. It's been my heart and soul uh, of my life, pretty much since I've been a little girl going to the store for people in the neighborhood and delivering meals on wheels in high school. And uh, I won the best Christian award um, for all my help that I did in high school, so which I was very proud of. Um, and so I think my heart has always been to serve. How can I help to serve? Um, so I started my nursing career working at Roosevelt Hospital on a homeless floor with homeless women. And a lot of them were um, hospice and I, I would help them to, um, to leave this earth in, in the most dignified way possible. And that was probably like one of the best jobs I've ever had. I mean, every job has been the best job, but that was what introduced me to what real nursing is and the power that you have to actually give your heart and soul and to really change somebody's experience for the better. Mm. So that was, and I still get emotional about it because I had all my patients who I loved, who I would come in on my days off if they were passing so I can bring, I'd bring in my tape recorder because those are tape recorder days and I'd make mixed tapes and play their songs. And mm. it was really, really wonderful. Um, so that was my first job as a nurse, as a, a full-blown RN. And it was the best thing ever. 
Um, and then I worked at NYU. Um, and that was the beginning of AIDS. So I got to take care of patients without even knowing what the disease was in the beginning. We had severely ill men coming in, very sick, and we didn't know what we were dealing with. We, we weren't even wearing protection, like we were just taking care of patients who were sick. And that was an honor and a privilege to help with that. Then I became a visiting nurse in the Lower East Side and the Alphabets. And that was another one of my favorite jobs because I got to go into people's homes and help families and, and make referrals to social services and, um, and help uh, patients at home. Um, and then I've been working in as emergency preparedness coordinator for about 15 years. How that happened was I was actually doing peace education in the community and then 9-11 happened. And my, we grew up right, well, I grew up in the Bronx, but then we moved to lower Manhattan right by the World Trade Center. So I was on the phone with my mom when the second plane hit and I lost touch with her. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know if she was alive or not. So I was just freaked out. So I got on the train the next day, took all day to get there, got off the train in, in the village in New York and then everything was closed off with military because it was a scary day, 9-12. And I was walking through and they would, wouldn't let me go through. And they were saying, you can, ma'am, you can't go through. And I was like, well, I have to go through. I have to find my mother. And the military, they were in a state and they would say, well, we're going to have to shoot you. And I was like, well, go ahead and shoot me, but I'm going to find my mother. I have to find my mother. They were just being protective of the space because people weren't allowed to walk or, you know, be around. There. So I went to a police station and I remember an old um, captain who went on his radio and told everybody, let her through, let her through. So I got through to my mother and my mother was alive. They were in a smoke-filled apartment. And um, so I stayed there for the week. I helped neighbors call their families to say they were alive. I had to go get, I had to um, flag down a, an army tank to go get medicine for my mother because you weren't allowed to walk in the streets. And my mother had run out of her medication and she had just had a heart attack two weeks before and, and was running out of her medication. So anyway, I stayed there, helped, intense, you know, really intense. I came back and in order for me to process all this, I just started going to the schools and Boys and Girls Club, senior housing and senior centers, teaching emergency preparedness. I just made it up. I made up the whole thing and I, I bought stuff myself and gave out flashlights. I was just like totally processing the trauma that I had just been through. And then my friend who was... um the administrative director at the health center in, in the town that I live, Charlestown, called me and said, would you like to get paid for what you're doing? And I said, wow, imagine, imagine that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what a novel idea. And so uh, she hired me uh, to do emergency preparedness. And then the um, Chelsea Health Center, which is I mean, sitting in now and Revere Health Center, which is a neighboring health center, said, can we have her too? So they hired me and so they created a position to be what I am now. Mm. So it all like comes together. I just want to um, touch into the story you were just telling, which is, you know, I mean, throughout your career, you've been in climates where there is a incredible amount of trauma, a felt amount of trauma, right? And I think there's sort of two things that I hear. One is working with other people and their trauma and the story you just told of going to find your mother, which is being able to cultivate attention and focus while you yourself are having a very personal trauma. And so before we get into your role in New York City and in Chelsea, I just want to ask, what is it that helps you 
zero in, take care of the task at hand, get incredibly focused and directed, um, particularly when there are numerous emotions and chemicals associated with those emotions that could be clouding your executive functioning? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what, for me, what happens is when things are so bad, like so intense that I just think, okay, if I'm safe, and even when I, they were going to shoot me, I wasn't scared for my life. I was scared. Oh no, what if my mother is, needs help? Like, so I kind of hyper-focus on what the, what is the need at hand? And I just totally give all my attention and I try to think, okay, can I find somebody who's kind? Who can I ask to help me? In that case, I don't know if I would have made it all through all, because like, it was like 30 blocks, how I would have made every corner without being arrested or shot. I don't think that would have happened if I hadn't thought, go to a police station, ask a kind older. And I went for the older man because I would think he would understand that I'm trying to find my mother. And I think she might not be alive and I need to find my mother. And he was very, very sweet. To, so I think like, I think you, I think you um, get super focused and you just, you just got to do what you got to do. And you just hope for the best because you put everything you have, your whole heart, your soul, everything into it. Here, as you're saying that sort of being in this acute moment where there is a heightened sense of purpose and really, you know, if I were to think through the framework of emotional intelligence, it's looking out into the system and saying, who are the individuals in the system that I can um, call on to help me execute on this purpose and then exercising some degree of influence in order to make that happen. The most important thing that we always learn in emergency preparedness, and it's in life, collaboration and communication. And you can never do anything without both of those things. And sometimes the response of what you get is, is the effectiveness of your collaboration and communication. So tell me a little bit about your role in Chelsea Mass. And I specifically want you to share with our listeners what you've been doing for the past two years for the COVID pandemic. <laughs> a lot. Patricia's, Patricia's attention has been in many, many places. <laughs> But yet very focused at the same time, right? Which is really, it's just why, why we want to speak with you. We really want to hear about that. So I'm sitting now in the health center and it's, um, it's in the middle of, 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 of the city of Chelsea, which is north of Boston. And it's a two square mile city. Uh, we have 35,000 uh, documented uh, residents, but we have such a high um, incidence of undocumented um immigrants that live here, we think there might be 45 or 50,000 people in this two square miles. So we have like 88% of our, um, uh, of our community is Latino. Um, and 88% of our uh, families live in multi-level dwellings. It's really hard to find affordable um, housing. Housing is a crisis here before the pandemic but really hit us hard because that's what caused everybody to get so ill so quickly. Um, we became the epicenter of Massachusetts. We were the epicenter similar to New York. When New York was hit, we were hit the same time with the same numbers, astronomical deaths, sickness, total devastation, fear because people here, they don't trust the government. Some people do, of course, but a lot of them don't because they're undocumented and they were afraid for their families. So we were in the position of, oh, my gosh, what do we do? Where do you begin? 
So luckily, because we, we have done a lot of work with emergency preparedness before, we kind of had a few things that we could just go right to. And one of them was um, we had a surge plan. We, we um, activated our surge plan. We activated our incident command system, which do you know, you know about the incident command system? Just for sake of our listeners also, just give us a little bit more uh, specificity. Like this, this wonderful, it was created in the 70s in uh, the wildfires in California. And at the time, all the different organizations were responding to this crisis of loss of life, loss of land. So after this horrible devastation in California, they decided to have a national unit um, um, process that every police, fire, EMS, military, college, schools, everyone will be trained on this command system so that once something happens, you just activate it and you just plug people into the different uh, positions. Like right now, if a plane crashed into my building here, if EMS and police came in, they'd say, who's the commander? Who's this? They would know who to ask for. You can quickly activate. And because we practice this in, in our health centers and in, in MGH at the hospital a lot, we were really, really quick to do that. Um, so that was one, one great response. The other thing was MGH, the hospital that we're part of, they um, quickly activated an equity and community health COVID response team. And they had the city and they had like all the players, all the organizations in on this. And then one of my dear to my heart, which I'll probably always end up sobbing because it was so beautiful, was um, the city of Chelsea um, started a Chelsea pandemic response team. And every day I was on the team, I was the representative from the health centers on this call with organizations, um, with the library, with um, um, the churches, all of the community on this call, we only had a half an hour and it was just announcements only because we have so much going on. We didn't have time to discuss things. We just like, I would say like, what hours are we open? You know, uh, you know, what are we, what are we focusing on? We, we were making, um, um, we were creating um, kits where we put in um, masks and hand sanitizer and soap we were delivering them all out through the community. So it was like one of those quick announcements and then we would take it offline and then all work around that. Um, and at the end of each call, one of the faith leaders would lead us in a prayer. Mm. And it was like so needed at that time because everybody was so, so, you know, we didn't know what was happening. And every day they'd announce how many people died and the number was going up and up and up. And we were like, oh my gosh. So that's how we quickly responded was we had all, all hands on deck. And as I talk about collaboration, collaboration was key in everything because no one could fulfill all the needs that were, were necessary. We were all just working together, just trying to piece together. How can we help? How can we help? And how can I support you uh, in best we could? There's something really amazing as you're talking, I'm thinking about, um, you know, if I were to think, what are the upsides of being in a crisis, right? When you just said meeting every day for 30 minutes, just to get a handle on what was happening in the environment and then deploying everyone to go take care of their areas. A lot of our listeners, I'm sure, are thinking, wow, I work in an organization and I actually wish things functioned like that more often, right? I mean, there's this thing that happens in a crisis where there's no time to waste. And so everyone just kind of goes straight to the matter and gets straight to the point. But I'm wondering how do you individually as someone working in this type of crisis and how do those around you 
decide what's important? How do you decide where to put your focus when there are so many overlapping issues intersecting at one time? Yeah, it's that's a tough one. And it's tough, but then it's not tough because how we decided every day, the temperature of the day was we would have an incident command leader meeting and our, our incident commander, who is, um, who is our administrative director here in Chelsea, she's been a, a director here for 34 years. Mm. She's the most brilliant, most kind, most wonderful, you know, fabulous person I've ever met. And she just, she just listened to everybody. She's a listener. She had her notebook and she just like, she just gave us the day like, okay, so we'll do this, we'll do this, we do this. Because we had to take our whole health center, which was a health center where we served, you know, adult med, PD, GY, changed it to a respiratory infection clinic where everybody sent all their sick patients, ambulances in and out, people choking, you know, not breathing in the hallways. We had an urgent care, we had a respiratory infection clinic. And we had to change our, we had to build walls and we had to you know, tell her anyone who can work remotely to leave the building and only have people here. And we had to make sure we all had all the right gear. And, and one of my jobs was fit testing our staff to make sure that they were, they knew how to put an N95 mask on correctly, which was the matter at that point, life and death. And so my job was psychologically helping everybody like, okay, let's do, we can do this. Let's do this. How can we do this together? How can I help you? Let's do it again. And it became um, a gift for me to be able to help them to allay their fears. My main point is leadership. Leadership was everything because we had the best leader who knew how to access who needed to be accessed. I hear you getting choked up as you're talking about this leader, your leader. And what I hear is that even in the presence of the need to acutely focus, there was still an incredible amount of empathy at play and a lot of space made to hear people and hold people's emotional state. I think once again, leadership and modeling helped a lot because all of the leaders that, so all of the, um, the roles that Jeanette picked for, for all the medical leaders, for the operations, for the planning, for logistics, for the finance. They were all of the caliber of kindness and empathy mm. mattered. And so that was foremost. And it wasn't like they were like softies. They were like tough, like tough and no, no time for bull crap. Like it was like, you know, but but kind and gentle. And it was almost like a, it was like an, uh, I don't know, like a ballet or an, an opera, a beautiful performance of a very well-qualified, highly qualified, empathetic, brilliant, absolutely brilliant people doing their best. It was, mm. it was phenomenal. And I was talking to Jeanette yesterday about some people, um, chose not to work at that time because it was just too scary. And, you know, for personal reasons, whatever the reasons, you know, I respect that we respect that. But we were both saying how we feel so blessed that we had this opportunity to see the beauty of people and the brilliance of people that is just mind boggling. It's just mm. mind boggling. Like we don't talk about it much, but when we do, it's like, oh my God, that was unbelievable. So when someone was like being a jerk, 
they were called on it. You know, so we had no, we had no, we had no time for jerks. And you know, sometimes some people could be acting out a little jerky, and it was it wasn't mean, but it was like, you know, yeah. we take this offline. Yeah, or just a simple like, hey, hey, come on, <laughs> yeah. One of the things we talk about in neuroscience and psychology and emotional intelligence is um, this concept about confirmation bias, right? That we look out into the system to affirm what we already think we know. And so I'm just wondering if there's anything you can say about confirmation bias or the need to to sort of suspend our own narratives, sort of back away from what we think we know and really be with what is, right? Which is like a kind of focus that is, again, a bit widening and and allows you to really take everything in. I think when you say that, what comes to my mind is, uh, so we we went through the whole COVID testing and that was a whole... (laughs) And then I was in charge of uh, messaging. So I'd have to work with the communication team and I'd be writing scripts and we'd have to get them um, translated into Spanish. And then I have to have two people in English and Spanish. And then we would roll them out. What I think of when you say that is when we had the vaccine clinics, the fir- when we first opened our doors the first day, we didn't know what to expect. It was all the most, it was the, it was the elderly, the vulnerable, handicapped, challenged non-English speaking, English speaking, every language speaking, every age, you know, you know, that could get the vaccine. And Jeanette set the tone for this. Everyone that walked through their, this door, they were deserved the best care, the most respect, and all the love we could possibly give because they were scared. They were horrified. Some of them hadn't been out of the house at all. Some of them hadn't seen another person. They haven't been touched, even like to have a vaccine, like, so touching them, taking their coat off. It was just, so what we did was we, we treated each person like they were just the most important person because they were, Hmm. it was life-changing. It was so exhausting. I mean, at the end of the day, it was like, Oh my God, I can't walk up the stairs. So tiring, but it was, Honestly, like it was so beautiful. And so from my sense, it was every single, and even people that were being angry and disrespectful, we just let them, you know, in their own ways, feel what they felt and acknowledge what they felt and then try to give them kindness and love to to help them through it. Hmm. So I think people are people and everyone responds to love and tenderness if it's given in, in a way that's true, that is true to your heart and that is true to theirs because they see it. Just for clarity, I'm assuming that you were working well over 40 hours a week through the pandemic. Is that a safe assumption? <laughs> yes, that's a safe assumption. <laughs> Do you have an estimation just so people can wrap their heads around some kind of... I was working a lot. And, and also, I was also doing private duty for my hospice patient. I was doing uh, two shifts a week, two 12 hour shifts a week with that. Wow. So I was kind of working a lot. I was working like a lot, a lot all the time, pretty much. And so how, how do you replenish your reserves so that you are able to focus on the patient, focus on the system, focus on the evolution of the pandemic and all of the new facts and the new information that was being released constantly, specifically within that first year, is there something that you lean on? Is there a practice that you lean on um, in order to keep yourself together, so to speak? 
at the time I, I, I started the meditation, um, I think it was calm. The, um, the, yes, I was doing, I was doing the meditation every evening to calm down. Um, but um, I watched some TV, but I, I actually would turn off the TV and try to just lie there and just pray and just breathe and then sleep. I was sleeping whenever I could sleep because I needed it so badly. And it was just wonderful. Thank gosh, because I needed to sleep because um, I didn't want to get sick, obviously. Um, you know, because if I, I kept thinking, please don't let me get sick because it's just too much work to do. So I would just make myself sleep whenever I could. And I would buy myself flowers all the time in my apartment so I could have pretty flowers everywhere. I just want to say I resonate with that so deeply. I had I had flowers all over and I bought so many houseplants through the pandemic once we were allowed to even enter a store again. I didn't see friends and and I was not that you know people were seeing each other but also like no one wanted to hang with me because I was working in the respiratory. Yeah. People were like we love you but yeah, yeah. Bye now. <laughs> but I, I just couldn't even talk much because it just I hadn't it's too much to talk about yeah. and I needed to just reserve myself. Yeah. I would imagine that there's a deep need for silence after being in a crisis situation all day long. That's exactly it. I'm curious if there's anything to say. I'm just thinking about, you know, the difference between being really in it, right? Like being in the center of something and really being able to see in real time what the dynamics look like versus being um, like the majority of us who were probably home watching the news and watching, watching the narration of what was actually happening, right? It's so interesting when we watch the news because our focus is someone else is driving our focus, right? And so I'm just wondering if there's anything to say about that, right? The difference between being on the outside of a crisis and having it narrated for you and being on the inside of a crisis. And if there's anything you noticed about your perspective that might have been different than someone who was on the outside. That's a good question. I think the opportunity that uh, being on the inside gave me was that okay, what can I do? What can I do? Where can I use my skills to, to help in any way I can? Because when you're watching the news, you're just, you're watching it and you, you're not part of it. But when you're in it, like for example, so every day I was on the pandemic response team call and it was, it was just horrible, the numbers. And, and then every, and we were, people were dying. Like the numbers were just going up and up and up. And, and, um, and we were having a problem um, uh, paying for uh, burying our, our, our dead um, in our community. So we, we had so we started a funeral fund, and um, and that was really hard um, because it was just so heartbreaking. And the thing also with this health center is that many of our staff that were essential staff that were working with me live here. So their family were members were dying and friends were dying. So I felt like for me, it was really important that I can figure out how we can get funds to bury our dead. And then um, one of the nurses here knew somebody who had a foundation. And she, actually my friend, the nurse here saw me crying one day because I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, it's just too much. And um, she had a friend who, and she wrote me a check and we helped to bury our, our dead. Mm. So um, like really seeing like that, if you're on the inside, I couldn't do that all myself, but just 
embracing it and thinking, okay, we have to do something. And I did it with diapers also. Every day the incident command team met. And at the end of the meeting, Jeanette would say to me, what do I have? You know, do I, and I would just give like a few, a few things. Cause you, we, we were overloaded with information. So I didn't tell them little things that, you know, I was, I just saved it. So for a couple of days, I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to bring up diapers. The community was out of diapers. We had, we have so many young children here and because nobody was working because most of them are essential workers and they're working off the books and, you know, worked in hospitality, which was closed. And so we were having a diaper emergency, like, like really bad. And as a nurse, I was thinking, oh, no, now we're going to have a neurovirus. Like we, we can't, we just can't. So at the end of the meeting, she said, what do you have? And I said, we need diapers. We need diapers bad. And so I'm in a room with, with the command team, as well as a lot of people remotely listening. The behavioral health unit chief said, I'm on it. Everybody's like, I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm on it. That incident command team, we raised 100,000 diapers, trucks of diapers. All of their friends were bringing trucks of diapers for, for, for two months. And I was, the, I was the diaper lady. So I was, <laughs> I was like out there moving the diapers and calling people and, you know, running and storing them in the rooms here until people could pick them up. So that's like an example of being on the inside. But you also have to choose. Diapers is a one little word, but diapers like took a lot yeah. of time and, and, and it took a lot. And it was like trucks and trucks and trucks and trucks. And, and it was also a way for all of our staff to process what we're going through and feeling like we're doing something. It gave us something to do. I mean, it's not, not that we're looking for, you know, but it was something like that. Okay, we are really helping here. I just got um, quite teary as you were talking. I mean, not only because I am just like feeling into um, just all of the communities that through this pandemic um, have really suffered the worst, right? For a myriad of reasons. But I'm also feeling into just the feeling of helplessness. And it's like, I'm, I feel really happy with the work I'm doing in the world. Like I certainly feel like it has meaning, but I still feel that feeling of helplessness sometimes as someone on the outside watching the news, seeing all the imminent crises that need to be addressed now in the moment that are very pragmatic, like diapers. Um, so I appreciate what you're saying of just being in a position to just attend and that these small things are huge things. They are huge things. They're huge efforts that have to go underway in order to meet people's basic needs. I'm wondering if there is a specific moment that you can point to, you know, considering you're fitting people for masks, you're getting diapers to the community, you're on these response calls every day, you're doing hospice work, you're obviously taking a pulse on the community, which means I'm sure you're interacting with a lot of people to understand what the most urgent needs are. So you're really operating on all these levels of the sort of individual and the interpersonal and the larger systemic. Can you point to a specific moment of where you felt your attention was split and you were unsure of how to prioritize or what to attend to first? And how do you, how did you navigate that moment? Yeah. Um, another thing we, that uh, we were doing, we were getting donations of food at that time for the health center because, you know, because it was helping keeping businesses um, in business, but they, they didn't have 
customers. So people were paying them to bring us food. But then when we get the food, we would have to go around the, the building and, and distribute it, which would take time because we'd have to you know, count who's here. You know, then some people would like would say, Oh, I had chicken yesterday. I don't want, I don't want chicken. You're like chicken, chicken's all I got. <laughs> oh, I don't want just vegetables. I, you know, I was like, <laughs> but we ended up laughing. We didn't get needed. Just whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but some days like I, I hear, okay, the meal delivery's here. I have two people here that have to be fit tested. I have to call because I'm writing a script and a, so I would just do the best I can. Whatever was immediate at that moment, I would just try to just do it and just keep get, go through it. Like one day, I think I said I couldn't do the meal delivery because I had too many fit testing to do. And fit testing, if somebody's going into work with a patient, that takes priority than meals. So it, when it comes down to it, it's kind of like the life and death kind of thing. So again, just a personal question. I'm just curious, how are you doing? How are you doing now, you know, two years in past, past what we think was the most acute point, but I mean, we're still in a place of uncertainty where we don't exactly know how things are going to unfold or what the future of um, public health looks like over the next year. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm tired and um, everybody's very tired. Um, You're very, very tired, but um, more than anything, I'm so grateful to be to work with such wonderful, smart, kind, hardworking people. It's been life changing. Uh, it's just been such a pleasure. I am tired. I think I can like now when I'm to, I, I don't I don't talk a lot about this stuff. So now when I'm talking about it, I'm getting weepy because like there's all this stuff like I we haven't even had time to talk about it much because we're too busy to you know what I mean. So I think talking about it is good. And so thank you for this opportunity because I really don't really talk about it because um, just there's so much to talk about, you know, but I'm doing okay, but I'm trying to give myself also some time um, to just kind of process a lot of these things and, um, and think about how we can support each other as we continue, because as people get weary, how can we help them, with their, you know, with, with what they're going through. So we're all trying to kind of help each other with getting through this. Yeah, it's such an interesting uh, switch of focus, being hyper-focused in the moment of crises to then getting a little bit of breathing room and realizing just how much exhaustion, just how much trauma and just how much grief there is under the surface. And then saying, okay, do I need to switch my focus from the external environment to the internal environment? And how do we all, specifically people who've been on the front lines, need to take care of themselves now in order to repair from what has been and potentially get ready for what will come? And so I'm wondering, again, you spoke a little bit to the role of meditation and the role of sleep, um, but is there anything else you want to say about turning the focus inward to yourself and sort of thinking about your inner reserves? Um, one thing that I, who I've turned to now, because now that I feel, because I wasn't really reading, like I didn't read a novel, I didn't read anything except for, you know, what's go, what numbers were happening. <laughs> You're like, I could really use a comic book or a Daniel Steele novel right now. Because, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I can actually read. And so I've been reading Dorothy Day. She had a, a soup kitchen in the Lower East Side. And um, she's always, and I used to help at the soup kitchen. And when I lived in New York, um, 
I never met her because I helped after she had passed, but um, she's one of those um, wonderfully wise, beautiful women that just gives me strength. So I've been reading her um, a lot and uh, getting a lot of strength and comfort from her. Is there any advice that you would give to um, people in public health, specifically emergency responders, about how to prioritize um, their well-being and their attention moving forward? I think uh, listen to yourself, listen to your body and to your soul and your and your spirit, because we all have our capacities. Mm. Like Jeanette's capacity was, uh, I'm still blown away by how she ran this whole thing plus she helped at the vaccine clinics plus she helped deliver the meals like her capacity is just enormous and my capacity is pretty good but sometimes it's not and when it's not I know I know I have to just take a break and and stop and and care for myself and remember to buy vitamins and then remember to take them you know and just cool out and take a bath you know like instead of being, you know, rushing, rushing, you know, um, and then laughing with friends. Like I have the most wonderful, wonderful friends. And, and even though I don't have the energy to like to keep it up all the time because I'm tired, but like to like touch base with some of my friends and just laugh and just have fun. It's really important to have some of that balance Mm. to feed your soul. I hear the work of being self-aware and understanding what our threshold is and, and what we might need to give to ourselves. And, and I also heard you just really, I think this piece about people having different um, levels of capacity, right? For stress, people have uh, different degrees to which their executive functioning operates. Just really being able to just be with what is for each of us and to not feel guilt or shame or pressure, because I think that is how we can be most effective in a crisis is to really know our strengths and our limitations so that we're able to plug in in an appropriate way. And to respect Um, others. Other people are good at other things. Like we all have our things. And so like not even a judgment thing, like, well, you know, if 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 you've had enough, you've had enough and you're allowed to have had had enough. The other person uh, um, I want to just bring up, Tom Ambrosino, he's he's our city manager. And uh, he he had to do, he was like, I was on the call with him every day. And I was just like, oh my God, how is he doing it? He was, because he had, he had a lot going on. And he said one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Um, We're in the call, people had no food. So people had no food. They were being evicted. They were on the streets. We had to open a hotel, uh, an isolation hotel for a domestic violence. for people who were being thrown out because they had, they were positive for COVID. They were nowhere to go. So we opened a hotel and housed them there. We had to bring the national guard in um, to give food out and buy big boxes because people had no food. And it was like one of those crazy things where every day we like, there was different places in the community where the national guard would come and, and give food out. And somebody on the call said to um, the city manager, Oh, there's people coming from Revere and, and Everett. They're not Chelsea people. We don't want them to have our food. And he, he had this like a moment of silence. And then he said, I am never going to deny families food. And if people need food, we're going to give them food and we'll find food for these families. I will never deny food. 
to people that need it. And it was just like such a beautiful thing because he could have easily said, you need to have an idea. Like it just was because it was just so much and there was such limited food. It was such a problem. He said, we'll get more food. It was kind of like a, a moment when I thought, oh my gosh, thank you. Patricia, as you're speaking, I just got this image, um, and I had never really thought of this before, but what happens when we widen our attention, the sphere of our attention, and the direct relationship that that can have to really widening the sphere of our heart and the sphere of our care. So thank you so much for sharing that with me and with it's our It's hard listeners. to talk about it because it was so beautiful to me. It make it, Every time I think about it, I get emotional. It's deep. It's Deep, and it's a lesson for all of humanity, really. I mean, it's really, it's, it is, it's profound. Oh, I want to thank you so much for being here with us today. And I just, yeah, thank you for sharing your story. And more specifically, thank you for the work that you do and are doing. And to everyone that you work with, to the great team of people um, that you collaborate with. It's such, it's so important. Thank you. Thank you so much for appreciating whatever what all these wonderful people have been doing and 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 what an honor it's been um, to be part of it and then to actually talk about it and share it so thank you One of the things that I've been thinking about, and I thought about this a lot in the conversation with Patricia, and it actually came up because Patricia um, expressed a lot of emotion during our conversation. And one of the things she said that this is the first time in this interview that she's had a chance to actually fully reflect upon the experience of the past year and a half and to fully process the grief. And I've been thinking about, you know, one of the things that distracts us, there's sensory distractions, of course, in the environment, and then there's emotional distractions, right? And so sometimes in order to focus, we kind of have to put some of our feelings and our emotions aside almost in order to show up, particularly in crisis for the moment. And yet, I don't know about you, Dan and Hanuman, but one of the things that I'm observing right now is that after this hyper-focus in some of these fields like healthcare, education, anywhere that there have been essential employees, people have had to really just buckle down and do what needs to be done in order to get through this time. And now here we are a year and a half later, and there's all of these feelings that haven't been felt. And it's almost like the grief that's gone unprocessed now is blocking focus and attention at this point. And so there's this tipping point, I feel, between when we put the emotions aside and then when we actually have to welcome them in and process them in order to keep going. Yeah, I think it's particularly dangerous in the healthcare professions. It turns out that Brain studies show that uh, physicians, for example, unlike other people, uh, are able to uh, turn off a part of the brain that processes emotions, which is very useful in ER. Uh, if you're dealing with a real medical emergency, you have to put your emotions aside. The question is, can you let them back in? Can you then, as this nurse is doing, revisit the moment and feel the grief, feel the sorrow, feel the sadness that you didn't let yourself feel because you had to help right then. And anybody who's sat a meditation retreat knows that the feelings that we internalize, that we don't process are there still, and they are waiting for us. They are a part of our internal world until we attend to them simply attend to them. And this really takes us back to what we were talking about uh, in the first 
uh, episode of this series where attention is caring, it is love, and attending to any given moment of our own experience is caring for ourselves. And that's all that our experience wants. That's all that we need is to, to just be present, to just uh, have that attention on our experience. And, and how our systems feel about that is that we are cared for, how our emotions feel about that, when we're able to, to be with our feelings and to not have a, an aversive reaction and, and try to shove them away or run away or something. That is letting our system know that we do care and that we are here for it. And, and it's deep, it's deep healing work. You reminded me so much of, um, you know, one of the things that we think about as being a, a part of effective communication, which is listening to understand versus listening to respond. And I think what you're talking about right now, Hanuman, of just like actually being with what is in front of us instead of trying to fix or respond or do something about it. Actually, that's really the best kind of attention we can bring is just the being with something. I think there's something more too to what you're saying which is that this awareness is non-judgmental. There's no judgment in it. It's kind, it's compassionate. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Isis, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Patricia Simpson. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Dream by John Cage, and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.